What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the All Nighter Podcast, where we talk about architectural practice and education. My name is Jarrett Hardy, and I'm here with my co-hosts Jordan Vonerbrink and Aaron Mahalachek, and we are students hoping to inspire and guide future and current architecture students, design students, and young professionals. Uh, so today we are super excited because we're going to be talking about diversity and equity in architecture, and it's a super important subject. Um, especially in the time that we're in now. Um, and we have a really special guest. Her name is Nilu Vakil. And so Nilu, a little background, graduated with a BFA in Visual Communications and Design from the University of the Arts in Tehran, Iran, and then earned a Master of Architecture degree from the University of Colorado in Denver. And then on top of being a licensed architect, she's also a lead building design and construction accredited professional. And additionally, Nilu is the president and principal architect of In-Situ Design. Uh, currently, she is also a professor at the University of Kansas, where she was the founding director of the Interdisciplinary Interior Architecture Program in the School of Architecture and Design. And then in 2018, Nilu was named Top 25 Architecture Educator of the Year by Design Intelligence, uh, which is an academic ranking research institute in the U.S. Uh, so Nilu, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. This is pretty exciting uh, not only the time is pretty great to have this topic as part of our discussion, but um, just addressing some of the built environment issues that we've been dealing with. So thanks mm -hmm. for having me. For sure. Now, and you're a great fit for this topic in specific. Um, and I'm glad. I think, did you reach out to Jordan Aaron first, I believe? I think Joe did. Um, okay. We've been doing a lot of thinking about DEI issues. Um, DIB issues, belonging has been added to the uh, to the list um, at the University of Kansas in general. And mm -hmm. um, now we're really getting into the departmental issues of um, what are the initiatives that we want to take to broaden our reach to not only students uh, of color, marginalized students, but even recruitment of, mm. um, of middle schoolers. Uh, to understand mm -hmm. what the built environment is and what architecture can do uh, for our society and the community. So it's a great mm. time uh, to have these conversations because I learn a lot from you guys and from these conversations, and I'm happy to, mm -hmm. to share that. Absolutely. Well, cool. Well, we'll jump right into it. So we have a rough outline, but kind of the first question we wanted to go over was what or how was your unique experience as a woman, an immigrant mm -hmm. from the Middle East, and how has that impacted you as an architect so far? Well, I, I have to give you guys a little bit of a background because my background actually shaped the way I look at architecture. I grew up in Tehran, which is the capital city of Iran, um, is a thriving city with thousands of years of history. Uh, so there are layers on top of layers of the built environment. And the streets are landscaped with 100-year-old trees. And uh, the, the city uh, and the community and the, the surrounding that I grew up in reflects uh, a gradual evolution of an old city. So growing up in post-revolution Iran, uh, which that's, that's the key the post-revolution Iran really means, uh, for us from, from Iran, means that you grew up in a war with a neighboring country for eight years. So for the majority of my childhood and school years, um, I saw how a drop of a missile um, can wipe out thousands of years of history, culture, and growth and force people to relocate. The environment that appears to be permanent and lasted for a long time is actually pretty fragile. This fragility of the environment made me very interested in becoming an architect. And when I moved to the US, I was surprised to see this juxtaposition of shiny glass downtown towers and beautiful downtown buildings. And then you have these crumbling urban neighborhoods that are boarded up with uh, vacant houses and windowless structures. So in a new context, this looked familiar to me and I came into my architectural education in the U.S. with a perspective that was not only unique in nature, but sensitive to these cultural and preservation and adversity, societal adversity issues. But at no point in my architectural education in the U.S., this was addressed. So I never studied this. 
Um, mm -hmm. So this was a clear void of addressing this, these issues and challenge of the context with our environment in our educational um, years. So that's that's how I that's how I was formed. My my mindset and my thinking was formed around the architectural education. Mm. Wow, that's that's, that's, a that's lot. interesting that you brought up like how we don't like confront that a lot in education because mm -hmm. I think the first mm -hmm. time I had to deal with it. Um, Gregory Critchell, who we've had on, he had a, us do a project in, it was, was it 27th of Prospect? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, kind of that similar area where it's all these abandoned houses, things are boarded up, and, and doing a project there, which was um, a much different, more unique challenge than all, all the other buildings I've designed. In Absolutely. So You're talking about Prospect, right? The Prospect neighborhood mm -hmm. in Kansas City. Uh, yep. That's exactly, that's exactly the example I'm talking about. Uh, for me, it was um, I, when I first moved to the U.S., I moved to, uh, to Dallas, uh, and then I moved to Los Angeles, and then to Denver. So I've been sort of looking at these big cities, relatively large cities, and looking at these contrasts of extreme poverty and extreme um, business-driven economy that you know they're they're in contrast with each other and you're right we're not mm -hmm. we're not uh, facing them head on and i think our architecture education should do that um that it should we should definitely talk about these issues they're not mm -hmm. comfortable but they're relative mm -hmm. exactly so then going along with that mm -hmm. um I, I mean so how when architects are put in positions where they're asked to design a project by a client um, they know it can impact a community um, in different ways, and it can it a lot of it is negative, and that includes examples like gentrification. Mm -hmm. How do you personally think we should be tackling these situations? Right, and these are these are being talked about in a lot of large neighborhoods and cities uh, these days because we see that uh, the impact of um, social economic development uh, on some neighborhoods. So the issues that impact communities, especially marginalized communities of color, is very complicated uh, or are very complicated. It's not just one issue or it's not an architectural issue uh, per se. It is a network of economic development, infrastructure, policy, zoning, banking, architecture, and more. So architecture is a really small piece of the puzzle. It's there. We have to do our share, but it's a small piece of the puzzle, like every other one is a small piece of the puzzle, but they all come together and, um, and address all of this. If all are not addressed, the communities will be impacted negatively. And I am a big believer in that. So you talked about gentrification specifically. Uh, gentrification is about displacement of people who can't live in their neighborhoods anymore and are pushed out of their communities under the excuse of growth. That's what mm -hmm. really gentrification is. People who live in these neighborhoods are pushed out, not just from their homes, but their property taxes are so unaffordable that they're being pushed out of their local network of support, childcare, places of worship, community connections, food markets, restaurants, and really their entire community well-being as, as, as people. So um, it feels like you're sort of yanking a rug from underneath people's feet. And uh, this is really what's happening with gentrification. And there is a false premise happening these days. There are papers written about this that says that the neighborhoods that are being gentrified um, are benefiting from the wealth that is brought into these neighborhoods. The displacement of people and families uh, not only come with disruption, uh, but a gradual implosion of communities. Because when you're displacing a community, not everybody's moving together to another community. Mm -hmm. People actually move to different locations, so they lose that core support, their churches, their places of worship, uh, their restaurants that they meet and greet, their food markets. So they have to go and find those new places. And the burden of building a community 
falls back on these marginalized people that are pushed out of their communities. Look at Five Points in Denver. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this is this is happening in Five Point in Denver. Five Points in Denver, which used to be called the Harlem of the West. It was this thriving black neighborhood with its own jazz clubs and poetry scene and uh, sort of a lot of culture, rich cultural activities there. And I know there's an attempt to bring these cultural aspects of the neighborhood back in those neighborhoods. But if the community is not there, there's no authenticity to, to these places. You might as well put a hard rock cafe there. Who cares, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, if the authenticity is not there, it, it doesn't matter what's there. So architects need to educate. You asked me, what, what is our role? And I think our role is to educate our clients. Not easy to do, but it's our role. And um, what we can do, which we're good at, is uh, to be innovative in designing and designing affordable homes that are aesthetically pleasing and understanding how to play with the zoning. You know, how can you put an accessory unit that could be rented that becomes an income for a family that now they can actually stay in their communities and um, and afford the taxes because they have a unit that are renting or they have a family mm. member that moves in with them. Also looking at government incentives and funding and uh, zoning and sort of all these issues that we are good at and we understand. So that's our role to uh, to be able to be effective and not believe that those articles that are written, the false premise that people are bringing up in an excuse of growth. That's mm -hmm. what we can't continue doing. Yep. Aaron, do you have any specific thoughts so far? Um, just kind of thinking, like, just thinking about what you were just saying. I feel like with gentrification, a lot of times what ends up happening is people will get displaced and then they just keep getting moved around and pushed around and then there's nothing really, um, you know, helping to bring them up from the bottom. So you need to like have that, uh, those government incentives and whatnot to kind of spark growth that's not um, going to push people out. I, I, I very much agree. It's, there's a lot of educating and policy change. Um, I think one of the questions that we keep asking ourselves, uh, how can architects be more involved in the politics of, of the world that we live around. And mm -hmm. I really believe that, um, yes, you're not designing, you're not sitting down with a roll of trace paper or with Revit in front of you designing anymore, but as a, as a politician, you're involved in policymaking to, um, to, to change laws in order to address some of these um, issues that we're facing. And we will we'll be facing more and more of this because now with COVID and how it also um, created this disparity between marginalized communities and how they're impacted both economically and health-wise, we'll, we will see a lot more of this. And mm. um, we need to address this in the next decade or so um, to be effective for the future of this, uh, of our communities. Mm. So then so, that begs the question. Oh, go ahead. So I was going to ask, like, how do like architects start getting involved? Do they just obviously start running for office or do they need to start like forming lobby groups where they're putting in a lot of their own money to lobby governments, not only at the local, but at the state and federal levels? Is that how far we should probably be going with this? Um, I think the key um, piece is to be involved in, in uh, our professional association. Our professional association is AIA. They have um, they, they are the ones who lobby on behalf of us. So understanding and getting involved, um, that opens up a lot of doors and interest. Um, that's, that's really one piece of it. Another piece is really understanding law. So um, architects, without knowing their rights, can't really advocate for other people. So that's really, uh, that's really what it comes down to. Um, I think there are a lot of... Uh, uh, you know, there are a lot of interest in understanding construction laws, but how about moving into uh, a type of education that addresses legal issues in architecture? I know we talk about 
uh, professional practice and ethics in our profession. But in a three-credit studio or in, in a three-credit lecture, how much can we really learn? Mm-hmm. Um, is there a path? Is there an architectural path? that allows students to actually dig deep into that? Is there a PhD associated with that? Why isn't, um, why isn't law for architecture something that we, uh, we can't look at? I mean, that's, that's what we need to look at um, oh, dang. To, yeah. to make sure that uh, architects become lawyers too. Mm-hmm. And when you become a lawyer, you know how to create uh, effective advocacy too. And that's, mm. that's sort of my perspective because I think we need the tools and the tools that we uh, need to be effective in a bigger society is not just designing a building, it's really affecting um, legislate, legislation and laws. So, and I think the path for that is to understand law. That's so true. Wow, I, I've never thought about it like that. Well, you're an architect. So th- yep, <laughs> I'm an architect. Shows you that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, okay, so I'm gonna start with an example of a project that we did, and this was with Jordan, and it was with Greg, uh, Greg mm-hmm. Critchlow. And so we, was it, what was the name of the community, Jordan? The one, the studio, Project 3, with what? the community center. The community center oh, that we did yeah. with Greg? Yeah, the one I was talking about earlier? Yeah. So that, I mean, in in short, we did a community center for that, for kind of a herding community, and they're, I mean, we made these workshops and different things that people could come in and actually hone their skills in and then maybe jumpstart their lives or go do something and do something positive for their communities. Um, and it, it's not that much cost to them. And so those things are super important to think about. But that's just one aspect of our studio where we can start thinking about these issues. So how do you challenge your students to think about all these issues and there's a lot of them, right. um, but then how can they get into the profession and then tackle mm-hmm. these head on as well? Right. I think um, Gregory is really on the right path of how to educate architecture students and understanding um, community challenges. Um, so let me let me take a step back um, okay. in, in, in a way to answer your question. I think it's not just educating our students on these issues, um, which I uh, which I really believe that's part of it. It's the fundamental challenge for me is what kind of students are studying architecture. I think that's my mm. first question uh, for us internally. What kind of students are studying architecture? I strongly believe that uh, we are all users of the built environment planning, design, policy making, and we all should have a say in how uh, our environment is formed. So just for one demographic to form a community for all, um, I think that's that's very much um, uh, not a way to be effective in communities. So that's one way to look at it. And it appears that this Eurocentric you know, sketch on the back of the napkin and give it to other people to figure it out, uh, which is very much appraised in our in our schools. Uh, you know, we look at these very very abstract sketches that became a building. You know, how did it? How did this become <laughs> a building? You know, <laughs> so this notion yep. of the Eurocentric star architect um, notion is needs to go away. This is not. This is something that we're we're celebrating in architecture schools, and I don't think that's the right way to do it. And Mm. if you're not as people actively um, involved in our communities, then we feel disconnected from the communities. Even if it's uh, it's from the design piece of it, we feel uh, like we are not participating. So, and then we also face a challenge that um, that we don't have precedence that we give our students to study. So if you don't have the recruitment of marginalized students studying architecture, eventually graduating, becoming effective architects that address the issues of their communities, then how are we expecting our students to find those precedents? to be inspired, you know, so the work is being inspired by, again, the small group of star architects that 
really are not forming the textures of, of our world. They're coming in and doing this sort of beautiful jewel buildings and, and we love them. And these are sort of these moments in our cities that we all like uh, and we uh, appreciate and we are proud of. But how does that change the texture of a neighborhood? So this brings me to my second um, thing that I want to address. Um, so often we hear from um, students from marginalized communities. I'm talking about architecture students who are here now from, the commu from marginalized communities that uh, are studying architecture. Uh, they keep telling us that they're not interested in participating in studio projects like large concert halls and expensive galleries and museums. So often they tell us that why would I get myself involved in a studio project that that very, that very studio project that I'm designing is a cause for gentrifying my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So if you're not listening to our students coming back to us and bringing their personal experience of living in neighborhoods that are being gentrified or the challenges of their neighborhood, uh, we can't expect to be effective. So quite honestly, I was one of them. My skills as an architect was really about how to design beautiful museums and how to do these beautiful details of the museums. And yeah, while those are great, and I'm very proud of those skills and I <laughs> like the skills that I have, but I have to be intentional and deliberate about the education piece of it. So um, in the past few years, when we were talking about students there, and what is important to them, what is important to our students, they always talk about, you know, what's important to me is gathering, is community, is education, is connection. It's a beautiful building that does all of that. It's student with disabilities, is my relative who is suffering from um, I don't know, dementia, how do I address that? How do I address my brother who's on a wheelchair? You know, those are the challenges that the students bring into our world of education that we need to be sensitive to. So um, just in the past year, year and a half, um, I've been pushing myself to address some of these with, um, you know, working with... Um, Kansas City School for the Blind and Anchor mm -hmm. Center uh, for, um, for children with visual impairment and blindness uh, in Denver and in Kansas City to understand some of the biggest challenges that our children have in the work, in, the, in their own education environment. And it has been a really rewarding few years to look at these and see how, how much passion our architecture students bring to these. Um, ideas and um, how innovative they are. And they can actually think about these things a lot better than, um, than people who are just educators or people who are just policy builders. You know, they, they engage the community, they ask the right questions and they understand uh, the challenges and they address those. Our students, our architecture students in general are really great um, problem solvers. So it's the innovation and problem solving that has been very rewarding for me in the past few years. Mm. Yeah, I, I really, uh, uh, especially getting projects that are different like that, you know, like I said, Gregory, it's like it brings a different problem. I have to think about it differently. It's not because sometimes, you know, with all, all the projects you do throughout university, they all kind of seem the same and kind of blend together. And it's like you kind of get a process because it's almost like you're dealing with the same problems over and over. Mm -hmm. But then when you get a different project like that one at 27th the Prospect, oh, I have to think about how it's going to impact the community. How do I um, benefit that community more when it's, you know, it's not just like some big glass skyscraper that you're doing in New York City or something. You know, it's it's different. <laughs> it's, you know, makes you uh, makes you think harder and actually hones your skills more, to be honest. Yeah. No, for sure. Mm -hmm. That uh, that project is probably the strongest project that I had in terms of diversity and equity and trying to help a community. Because now that I now that we're talking about this, I look back at some of my other projects, and they came in and they it was gentrification. It was kind of ruining the community. And I think now as I head into my masters and you guys as well, these are such important things that I really want to be thinking about. 
um, especially being a Latino student and just wanting to help out both Latinos and and people of all colors. And I think that's so important as a student. And I still got I have time to keep doing that. So <laughs> and keep gro- and keep growing that skill. Actually, my whole life is going to happen. But yeah, we, we all we all have we all have time to learn and respond. So uh, it's never exactly. late. Yeah, it's never late. Yeah. yeah. On that note, I think there are, you know, a number of students that come in and, you know, they don't think of architecture like that. And I would say I was one of those students that came in and I was like, oh, I want to create pretty buildings. I want to you know, do extravagant designs and whatnot. Um, and for the past few minutes, I've just been thinking of a couple classes that kind of, um, I don't want to say reinforce that thinking, but they certainly didn't help. It's um, the, the, uh, oh, shoot, what's the, I can't remember what the, the names of the classes are, but basically all of the ones that would give us the history of uh, prominent architects and, you know, learning about um, Louis Kahn or Louis Kahn or Frank Lloyd Wright. And they always tell about the, um, the designs themselves and really attaching names to the architects. Um, mm-hmm. And never throughout any of those classes did they really talk about what those buildings did to the communities. Uh, and those were classes that were you know, second year. So if you can give a little bit more attention to how those buildings affected communities and also with more, more recent examples, uh, early on in education, I think that you'll start to find more people realizing that this is a problem and, and more students who are interested in trying to solve those problems. Yeah. And I agree with you and it can't be just a course offered as an elective Mm -hmm. at the side, you know, and say, oh, hey, you know what, we're offering this. We can't, we can't look at it this way. We have to really, um, you know, engrave the ideas of, uh, of architecture as a political act uh, into our, um, into our day-to-day education. Um, I understand. And I, and, and I, you know, I know that we all sort of have that, uh, have that itch to design these cool things. And I think we have to get it out, out of our system and school. Mm. And I think it's a great way to address them. But also always thinking about how would this building uh, or how would this community that I'm building or I'm, I'm designing, whether it's a museum or whether it's a school or whether it's a library, whatever that is, um, how can this contribute you know what are the positive notions of contribution to a bigger community so i think Mm. every project that we do in in architecture education has to have a response to a bigger context after certain years after you learn the foundations and the fundamentals of architecture Mm -hmm. and the ordering system and all that stuff we have to start addressing even if it's a small building in a rural community you know, what is this bringing to the community? Um, we can talk about economy. We can talk about um, society. We can talk about a community. With even a little pavilion, we can talk about all of that. And there's nothing wrong to address those as a piece uh, that complements detailing and complements design and complements uh, materiality and complements sort of the cool, shiny building. So it, it's there is no... Um, I don't think they're they're uh, they're fighting with each other. They're complementing each other, and we can actually talk about these. So it basically um, turns on a light bulb in in a student's brain that says, "Oh, you know what? This is what I'm doing. How can we do this a little bit better?" Those gradual improvements and growth in sensitivity to our uh, to our built environment makes people good architects, makes people good community builders, and mm-hmm. makes people great advocates. So um, the project that, the prospect project that you're talking about, um, I'm very familiar with because uh, the previous year I, I looked at it and did a conference uh, presentation about that. And uh, it's all about transportation, right? Prospect mm-hmm. and transportation, uh, it's, it's, the lack of transportation in that neighborhood is creating a lot of uh, accessibility issues. And I'm not talking about disability accessibility issues. I'm talking about um, 
access to food and access to communities and access to mm. places to go. So uh, how can we sort of dial up that sensitivity in each one of our practices, whether you're practicing as a student or practicing as a, as a licensed architect or wherever you are in your sort of different, um, different striation of or different step of your profession, I think those are all valid. How can we dial up the sensitivity mm. and self-reflect a little bit? Mm, absolutely. Okay. So then... I guess if you don't have any last thoughts, we're going to switch gears a little bit towards let's do it, let's do it. towards uh, licensure. So Jordan ended up doing a little research. He was sharing it with us throughout the week, and we were all looking at it. Um, mm -hmm. So he's going to kind of run through some of the questions, some of the comments about that. Okay. Yeah. So I guess kind of starting off, you you kind of talked about how you know kind of trying to recruit more um, with marginalized communities and minorities so one of the things that i actually looked through this is from ncarb mm -hmm. um they basically had a bunch of research showing or looking at demographics for like who was starting ncarb accounts and uh, all the way up to um, people um, getting their uh, certificates and whatnot um but the one thing that kind of stuck out when especially when you're talking about recruitment is um, pretty much every minority has gone up in percentage in each category they were talking about, except for one, and that's um, the African-American community. So I don't know if you are familiar if there's any like recruitment problems with that or if it's just something like way further down the line where it's like a public education problem where um, that community specifically, I know um, they don't have access to great public schools or anything like that. So if it's just like the lack of them being exposed to these things in the public schools or maybe it's even a little bit when we're talking about they kind of associate architects with designing these buildings that cause gentrification and things like that or if it or if it's a combination of both right uh, i think i think it's it's all uh, everything that you're talking about and i think you guys are on the right path as far as looking at data and um understanding that the data speaks for itself mm -hmm. um I, I want to go back with, um, you know, the gentrification issue. And I think mm. the reason we don't see, and this is sort of my theory about that. So um, th the reason uh, we are seeing such a drop in our Blacks and African-American architects um, signing up for, for these sort of critical uh, post-education um steps to being licensed, I think it's because we're not, first of all, we're not doing a good job recruiting. Mm -hmm. uh, and recruitment cannot happen only at the last year of high school. If you're not generating interest from very early on, when, when students are becoming interested in one thing and they want to pursue that, let's say it's architecture mm -hmm. in sixth grade, you know, that's when you start to realize your interests and not that you don't change it around and people um, obviously have a lot of sort of back and forth on what they're interested in. But if you're not catching their brain at that time to say, this is a path for, you know, you guys to be able to effectively design a world that belongs to everyone. I think mm -hmm. this is this is a this is a notion that is that needs to be um, talked about. It's the same thing with um, women in engineering. A little bit, you know, women in engineering also suffer from that. You know, there are, there are one or two uh, female students in a class of 100, 120 um, uh, in most of engineering departments, and that's you know that sort of reflects that we are all sort of given this uh, cliche that, oh, you know, you know, you're a woman, you, you might want to think about, you know, not engineering. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> or, oh, you're, you know what, you're, you're sort of, you know, you're a black kid, you know, maybe, you know, architecture maybe is not for you. That's not, that's not what, um, we have talents in every shape or form. And mm -hmm. uh, it's about introduction and it's about seeing examples. So, um, we have to really do a good job recruiting, and we also have to do a good job promoting our current um, Black architects in our communities. You know, th this is, there is a big difference 
between having sort of this marginalized person in the back of an office cranking rabbits every day than really advocating and then bringing them to bringing them forward to say these are the type of architects that I want to work with because they understand things that I don't understand maybe as a white person or maybe as an African American person or maybe as as a Latino, you know, there we all work with intricacies of our own communities. Mm. Um, and I know that it's the same same sort of challenges in the Middle Eastern communities that uh, I'm connected to that is a very specific kind of education that people will want you to get. And it's mm-hmm. you're either becoming a lawyer or becoming a physician or you're a loser. You know, that's really what it is. And yeah. like, well, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> no, the world is a lot bigger than that. So mm-hmm. um, again, I'm, I'm speaking very sort of black and white about this, but it's, it's really the notion of bringing everybody together and promoting, promoting people to be at the, at the front of, of some of these discussions. Absolutely. Also, one more thing I want to talk about, which um, is pay gap. Uh, we know that um, our profession has not done a good job with uh, with addressing pay gaps in mm. um, in in the in the world. So in the, in our world. So and um, also long hours. I mean, our profession is known for. Pulling all nighters. I mean, look at the name of your class. Yes. <laughs> so if you have a, if you're a single mom and want to study an art, want to study architecture, is that even possible? Is that even a pathway? Even if you have a passion for it, and again, this is regardless of race. You know, this is this has nothing to do with race. It's the challenges that our education uh, appraises all nighters and appraises. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the harder you work, and if you're the last person out of the studio, you're like the the hero. That's not that's not the way to look at our education no, or our no. profession. Yeah. So it's no. it's all about the balance that we all need in our lives because we're just more successful if we have a balance in our lives. And I'm glad that we're talking about this because these are the challenges that we face not only in education but in the profession too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, I, I know it because like you and Joe are talk about all the time. You don't pull any all nighters. If you pull all nighters, you're not doing it right. Things like that. So, I, mean, <laughs> I think there was one night. Uh, <laughs> were you there, Aaron, when when Joe walked in at like one in the morning or something? Yeah. And he yeah. was like, "What are you guys doing here?" <laughs> that, that was funny because I think your, your your studio Neely was there too, and so he was yeah, he he took yeah. a picture of his studio. Yeah, I saw that picture. So, <laughs> well, and the, the, the funny thing is, I a couple of times I had to give my students a, a maximum number of hours to work on something. Mm-hmm. If you work on this for more than three hours, you're not doing something. You, this, there's something wrong with the way you're doing it. So yeah, give yourself productive. three hours, not a single minute. That Just like start your clock. Put your coffee in front of you. Take as many bathroom breaks as you want. Check your messages. Check, check your text. But give yourself three hours. You can do all of this work that I'm giving you yeah. in three hours. And let's be realistic. When students are working 40 hours a week and the cost of education is so outrageous that we have to work to yeah. actually go to school, then that's there is something broken in this equation. You only have 24 hours per day and there is a limit to our days. So we can't, we can't really expect or appraise people that, you know, they put their health and their wellness uh, on the line for what, like an extra hour of drawing a floor plan. Who cares at the end, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's really about... Yeah the understanding of how architectural education needs to be delivered and the mm-hmm. content that needs to be taught. I mean, believe it or not, every firm that you start working in, they will teach you different ways of doing Revit. They will teach you different ways, their ways of doing um, renderings and their ways of, of doing line weights. So they will teach you the standards of their firm. If you're a good learner, if you're just just a fun person to be around, 
that's really what people are looking for and mm-hmm. an interest and a passion for what you do. It's not about the all-nighters. And there are a lot, our, our profession has made a lot of mistakes uh, making heroes out of, uh, out of people who have no lives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, ser- no, seriously. Yeah. Hmm. You're right. Yeah. I mean, this this COVID has has put a lot of shine a lot of light on on people's uh, lives. We, uh, I know, um, a lot of people with young families and children. They said, you know what, this work life balance has been uh, has been great because I have flexibility in when I work and I have flexibility of where I work. And this has been what people wanted for a long time. Um, also, it created um, it created a little bit of a disparity actually between people with no families and people with families because uh, some people say, "Oh, I got so much done. This has been the best time of my life. I've been the most." Um, productive person that I've ever been because I don't have anybody to take care of. It's just me mm-hmm. and, you know, and me. And yep. then you have people with families and um, people that they need to care for that really um, have been affected by this negatively quite a bit. And that's, yep. this has been an issue, uh, at least in, in the academia and uh, with people who I sit on committees, university level committees, it's not just the issue of architecture. It's the issue of people with families and the being in a position of giving care, whether it's to your elderly parents or your children, versus you know not having um, a family or you know a, a spouse or a partner. So it's it's just really it's been very interesting looking at the contrast between the two and how some people think it's the best thing that has happened to them. Some people are just absolutely losing their minds. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And that disparity has to be addressed both in the profession and in our world of education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So true. And I guess to, on top of that, um, I kind of wrote it down here, but one, this was even before like COVID, uh, had happened, but this was actually a former student, uh, of Kapila's who had, he had started a, a small firm, but he was getting a ton of uh, work. He was growing really fast, and he didn't have like a lot of time to do a lot of searching to get some project managers. Mm-hmm. And um, he knew some women that had had to leave the field um, because they had started a family, and they weren't getting the flexibility and time to, to take care of the family too. So he actually brought them on part-time as project managers because he knew that these people were actually pretty talented, and they, they um, could at least manage one project form right. if not uh multiple and you brought them on part-time and they would I mean he gave them the flexibility to still be uh, moms and take care of their families and actually i don't think they at the time they were coming into his office a lot they were working from home so he he was a bit ahead of the curve on that one i thought part but yeah i just thought that was at least I, he kind of stumbled upon it but maybe a way to kind of look at that situation where yeah okay maybe you can't work 40 hours a week but you can still fulfill that kind of high level role, you just maybe only can take on one project or something like that. I don't know. Oh, right, right. And that's exactly um, looking at um, innovations and the way we work. That's also, mm-hmm. um, and it, it will change and it will hopefully it evolves into something easier, better, better platforms. Uh, our world reacted to COVID pretty quickly, which um, what you're saying is this was pre COVID that they looked at, uh, at, at a way that it can actually engage uh, a female leader in the profession to, be, to come back. And what a loss for the other firm. <laughs> so that's, mm-hmm. that's yeah. what I say. And our profession is starting to address some of these uh, inequities in regards to work-life balance and women in practice specifically. And we know that the care for children and caregivers it, it typically is gender-specific and it falls on women mm-hmm. um, in, in the U.S. society. And these are, again, not new issues, right? Um, I do criticize our system, not our profession, our system uh, Mm -hmm. that um, doesn't have uh, paid leave for parents in the beginning of, um, you know, in the beginning of forming families. And that's that's been very tough for women in profession, especially because they're the major caregivers for children or, you know, um, the parents or elderly. Um, so, 
and you know, a small firm of four or five or ten people can't really afford to pay somebody on a leave for six months. So if there's no government or federal or state incentive for people to be able to offer these mm-hmm. uh, to their employees, you, you just can't go out of business. Uh, mm-hmm. It just yeah. doesn't make the numbers don't work. The firms really want to do the right thing. I'm a big believer in that. But um, but if they can't afford it, eventually they're a business and they, they need to care for their business too. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Aaron, any thoughts? Um, not sure I really have any for this. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, actually, I can go back to the the end carb stuff here for a second because one thing that yeah. I notice in when looking at that data, um, for whatever reason, when you get to the completing the ARE stage, um, the percentage of minorities completing that goes down. And not only that, but they've looked at the growth of that over the past ten years, and that's been fairly stagnant. I mm. think it's since two thousand and ten. Right, they're looking at it's only gone mm-hmm. up like three or four percent total. Um, right. So I was wondering, like, why? Why is that? Are firms just not providing the the proper like assistance to these people, or is it maybe they're realizing as they're getting a profession, we're kind of hurting our own communities. We don't want to be architects or something. That you know. Well, I think we can't forget the 2007, 2008, 2009, two Recession. I think that has mm-hmm. a lot to do with that. Uh, so many people uh, dropped out of the profession because uh, buildings were not being built or designed. There was hesitancy in uh, in working with buildings or any profession that had any to do anything to do with city development um, because the numbers were so scary for a long time. So our our profession um, really had a hard time bouncing back. And I think the numbers that you see is sort of a long-term numbers of um, people really changing professions um, and you know starting the, their NCARB and starting their, um, maybe some of them, even their exams and saying, you know what, this, this just doesn't work out because I'm always afraid to be laid off or there's no new construction coming up or mm-hmm. I am being laid off and what do I do now? So you change profession, you go back to school, you go back to school for something else. So it might be sort of the backlash of uh, just the recent or the last decade's uh, recession that is coming into play. I'll be curious to know why exactly, but um, it is pretty stagnant, you're right. And then well, do you think maybe also the amount of time it takes to get your license has a plays a part in that? Because I think the average for any person to complete the, the ARIES and get their license was 12, 12 and a half years, something like that. Um, I, I think I think women were actually the ones that do it the fastest. They do it in 11, quicker. nine years. Yeah, yeah they do, everyone yeah. will do it quicker. But um, do, right. do you think that plays a part in it where people are like, this is just taking too long? You know, and at a certain point, right. it's like, you know, um, it takes doctors a long time to become doctors, but almost it's, it's almost the same as a doctor and you're getting paid less. And it's, you know, <laughs> it's just a, right. you know, as right. rewarding um, as I, I, I thought it would be. Right. No, you're absolutely right. I think. Um, the profession has been hard on itself. You know, that's really what it is. And I am very excited to see how uh, the next stage of addressing licensure issues is going to change some of our numbers. The whole idea of um, starting your um, your credits to your NCARB credits earlier when you're at school. You know, there are so many things that you can achieve while you do three-month internships, and I think there is a limit depending on the jurisdiction. I think it's 120 days minimum you have to be an intern, or you can't even call it a designer in a firm to be able to gain those credits. Um, mm. So these are the, the strategies that will help people get licensed quicker. And there is no reason for us to be so hard on ourselves. Um, look at law, for example. What law is doing, um, law is allowing their students to immediately take the bar exam after graduation. So mm. we can we do that? I mean, I think we can do that. And just because it took me three years, five years, however long to get licensed, 
it doesn't make it right. So I can't prevent you from getting licensed immediately. Because mm-hmm. the majority of what we learn throughout our profession is by doing the work in the profession. It's really mm-hmm. not by taking exams. We know mm-hmm. that. The exams, you read them, you take the exam, and you're done. You know, So uh, it doesn't really increase your knowledge. It, it, what it does, it ensures you that you know the basics of, um, of the welfare of people that you're designing for. And it, that's, that's really what it is. And I think that's important to understand that it doesn't necessarily make you a better architect. It make you a competent um, designer. It, it, what it does, it allows you to understand your, uh, your liability, not your liability, but your responsibility as an architect when you design a single building. It's really about, that, mm-hmm. that's really about, do you know your egress? Do you know how to keep, keep people safe? Do you understand, um, you know, how long does timber take to burn? You know, so yeah. it's, it's really about those logistical and very important issues of our profession that, that I think it's critical for us to know, but not in 12 years. You know, that's, I mean, we need to decrease the time that people get licensed so they can actually become bigger contributors to their society and to their profession. So true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll just say, I think, I feel like firms, sometimes firms can do a little bit of a better job with that, just providing more resources and whatnot. But I feel like part of the time what ends up happening is you kind of get stuck into the groove of just, you know, you're doing the work anyway and you're like, okay, what's the point in me even getting licensed? So mm-hmm. maybe, maybe there yeah. needs to be a greater incentive to actually mm-hmm. achieve that, that goal. Right. And some yeah. people don't want to get licensed and there's nothing wrong with that. They don't want to stamp a single drawing. They don't want to have that responsibility. And, and that is okay too. So um, I feel like the, the, if you choose to have that path, that's absolutely okay. But right. if, you have, if you choose to have a path that you want to get licensed, it shouldn't be, you shouldn't uh, have so many obstacles in front of you. One of them being, in my case, I had nine exams to take. So, uh, which, uh, and it was- That's crazy. Yes. Yeah, so, and then in, in my previous generation, they had to hand draw everything 12 hours uh, and one stretch of two, 12 hours hand draw uh, a lot of uh, a lot of their um, design related exams. So yeah. uh, again, these are obstacles that we need to strategically look at and remove and allow people to achieve their goals quicker. And and Carb is thinking about that, and I think they're pretty mm. aware of uh, of the challenges, and they're addressing them head on. Um, and I think I think the next round of uh, of these licensure issues are going to be slightly um, more fluid than what, what we had to deal with. But uh, I, I'm excited to see where they're going with that. And I think universities have a lot to do with that. They can help mm-hmm. um, accelerate some of those paths for the students who want to become licensed. And we can help with that. And we are willing to do that. Um, mm. There are so many licensed architects in, in the academic world that could um, assist with those uh, with those um, paths, and we're willing to do that too. Yeah. One other thing that I think I heard um, you mentioned, you know, kind of lowering the barrier to to get in, and I think that there's been a push in some places to kind of remove the requirement for the degree itself, mm-hmm. and that you know if you work a certain number of hours, you know, you probably know your stuff just as well as anyone else, um, mm-hmm. and so I think. Yeah, just ways that you can like lower the barrier of entry because also just talking about like the cost mm-hmm. of college, it's right. it's it's insane nowadays. So right, absolutely, and that's those are one of the barriers: licensure, cost of college, long hours yeah. of education, mm-hmm. high expectation, high number of courses. In the case of uh, KU, there are 180 credits uh, required for achieving an MARC uh, in five years. That's not only very expensive, it's time consuming and you can't expect people not to work to achieve those five mm-hmm. years. What are the other ways that we can deliver the content yep. uh, that is equivalent to what we teach here with those students who want to actually take those um, 180 hours? And um, how, how can we innovatively look at different ways to deliver education? Um, and I think in one of our classes, we read uh, about, you know, a scenario that had 
uh, a person going into the profession and getting licensed without a single year of education. And there are a lot of thoughts about that. And I think our students really talked about whether they agree or disagree or w whether that would be a good idea or not. Uh, and I'm curious mm -hmm. that what your generation brings to that table. And I think it's, it's important for us to think about them in a, in a different way than this sort of the, again, the Eurocentric way of education and the licensure and the stamp and all of that. So um, what is the goal eventually? Eventually, what is the goal of architectural education? And I think we need to reflect internally and come up with um, some ideas um, and rethink our, not only our public schools, um, how they expose students to different professions, and we have a say in that. And then also in the higher education, how our students are achieving some of these goals, educational goals. Mm. That's well said. Um, I th honestly, at that point, that's, that's a good point to wrap up. Wait, Jordan, do you have any last thoughts or Aaron? No, I was just going to ask Neela, did you have any, anything else that you were thinking of that you kind of just wanted to, to put out there? I yep, think you had one. You had one topic that I think we need to talk about a little bit. Um, you know, the there is a conversation about, you know, what are the signs uh, of, you know, what what are the firms doing to address some of these equity issues? I think that's mm -hmm. that's something to to really maybe talk about um, a little bit. And uh, I, I really think the firms want to do the right thing. Uh, there is a professional reaction to the DEI issues in the firms right now. I mean, and I think mm. it's a reaction. And suddenly um, the firms are hiring uh, DEIB consultants and they're forming DEIE internal committees and uh, they really look at, um, look at them internally and then they, they wanna know what's going on uh, with their firms to address some of these issues. Sometimes I'm skeptical, sometimes I, is it just a reaction to say we're doing you're doing this, or is it really fundamental? Um, and you know I don't know and I can't question any of the firms, but um, but for for those firms that they say they have figured it out, that raised a red flag for me. They say oh we we figured it out we have all these committees, okay so what are you doing uh, in those committees and who are serving in those committees? More, uh, you know, often people of color and underrepresented and marginalized people in firms are asked to be on these committees and they're asked to solve the problems that they did not and they have not been the cause of. So that's an, that's, that's an irony, right? Um, <laughs> you're getting, you're already marginalized. You're already 20, getting paid 20 or 30% lower than somebody else that sits next to you. And you're also asked to solve all these uh, complicated um, diversity issues in the firm. So, and, th and then there's a push to hire, to be a DEI hire. So, and I don't, I don't think any, any of us want to be that DEI hire. And, yeah. I, and I think that, that that has to be addressed. And the students need to know about that, that you never want to be a DEI hire in a firm. Um, and you want to be sort of equally hired for your skills and equally getting paid for those skills exactly. and not just be a DEI hire for a firm to say, oh, yeah, look at this, we're doing the right thing. So yeah. that's what I want to wrap up with, because I think that's an important DEI issue that um, we need to discuss in the profession, too. Absolutely. Cool. Well, that that was amazing, Nilu. That we we definitely just learned a lot, um, Jordan. <laughs> you, any last thoughts? No, I think I'm it looked good. like you were about to say something. No. Okay, cool. Well, well, we really appreciate this. Um, I think for everyone who's listening and all our listeners, it's just it's super important to start attending either events that may pertain to these things. Start immersing yourself in it in different ways, um, even if it's a little hard at times, because you want to be uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to, it's never going to be a comfortable spot to be in, um, especially with just everything that's happening. Um, so all these things are super important to take away. Um, and yeah, we just thank you once again and 
I hope our listeners enjoyed it. Well, thanks for the invitation. It was a great pleasure to talk to you guys. Um, mm-hmm. I look forward to hopefully some comments, um, challenging comments out of these conversations. And uh, mm-hmm. it's all good. Let's have those challenging conversations. We need to have a dialogue. Mm-hmm. But thanks for the invitation. Ab- it was a pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Stay tuned and go like, rate, and subscribe to help us make the show better. And you can also find us on Instagram at allnighterpod and email us at allnighterpod at gmail.com with any questions or comments. Thanks for listening. Have a great day, everyone.